The last six weeks, we've been in the book of Psalms. This morning, we're transitioning to a series in the end of Genesis. So you can turn there as I begin. Let me ask a question as we get started. Do you know why you were born? Scottish theologian William Barclay once wrote that there are two great days in a person's life, the day they are born and the day to discover why. I believe most have attributed this to Mark Twain, but either way, it's an instructive comment. Being born in this world is significant enough. Born with a sense of significance is another thing altogether. We can easily find out when we're born. You can just check your birth certificate. But the other day, why we are born, what's the purpose, that's a whole other search. It's not as easy to find. We might have all sorts of variations that we hear. She's, she was born to be a mom. He was born to play basketball. They were born to serve in the military. Somebody asked, what, what were you born to do? That's a question that most people ask themselves sometimes for the duration of their life. And you know, we just finished a series in Psalms and asked the question of what you're, what you're searching for. And now we jump to a series in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, watching a man, Joseph, experience the human struggle to understand the purpose of life and his place in that. And Joseph surely will ask this question, what was I born to do? Now, just this week, my kids introduced me to a pretty cool Netflix show called You Versus Wild. Have you, anyone seen that? It's, it's choose your own adventure stories. And Madeline was telling me about this, and I, it's a weird spot. I'm at this stage now where you know, for the longest time, I was the one that understood things, and I would teach and say, no, it works this way, and Madeline was doing that this week, and I thought, oh, I'm an idiot. This is, this is what happens, right? Your kids get old enough and they explain to you, Dad, this is how it works. And it's this Choose This Adventure, uh, like, show, we, and except it's, it's you're watching Bear Grylls take those death-defying steps. Do you remember the Choose Your Adventure stories? I loved those as a kid. That was the only way my mom could get me to read, was those books where you would read to a certain point, and then you choose which, which direction you want to go. You guys remember that? Some of you are looking at me really confused. Well, that's what this show is. So you, you watch him, and he starts, and then he says, what do you want to do? And he explains the two options, okay? And you, we, we, as a family, took turns choosing what he should do next. And poor Lucy, three-year-old Lucy, every time she would choose, it would turn out not so well for him. And, and, and he would end it and, and then say, oh, oh, no, you know, you need to go back and choose again. And it got me thinking, our lives can, can seem a lot like that. In some ways, we, we feel like we're taking two steps forward and then we take three steps back. And as Christians, our, our lives are most definitely not a straight line to heaven. You know, really our lives are like a, a dark, strange path through the wilderness on a hike. And you enjoy to hike. You know, there are days when you're hiking and the sun is shining and it's Brilliance and the path before you seems straight and wide and it just seems enjoyable. But then there's days when the fog is set in so low and visibility is so poor. And there's crazy turns on the path and, and slippery curves and, and rock slides. And these stories in the Old Testament are there for us as the church to help us know deep down in our bones that God is with us and he's for us and all of the, the dark, strange turns that we have in life. The Christian life is not a straight line to glory. 
but it's a, a twisted, troubled road. And that won't let you see very far ahead. And, and it takes us to the very edge of the path, almost to the precipice. And then God gives us hope right then to, to know that our lives are actually going somewhere good. Even though we may feel abandoned and, and far from him, God reminds us that he hasn't left us. He hasn't turned against us. In fact, he has our good in mind and the glory of Jesus Christ. And this morning, I wanna begin a six-week series, Lord willing, called Inextinguishable Hope as we look at the life of Joseph. I, I love that graphic, by the way. It paints so many different pictures. If you don't know Michelle DeMond, she'd get really frustrated with me if I said this, but I'm gonna do it anyways. She designs our, our, our stuff all over the church, if you see it. Um, but it, it really, in some ways, encapsulates all that's going on of, of, of the chaos, and really we'll see that this morning, Joseph's life. And yet hope that's littered throughout this as, as Joseph walks this treacherous path of life. There, there are definitely, in, in these last uh, chapters of Genesis, some hairpin turns and some slippery curves for this 17-year-old Joseph. Life doesn't always go the way that he thought. And then the question where is God in all this? Can, can he be trusted? Is life just a bunch of coincidences, a bunch of happenstance? Or is there purpose to it all? And, and if you stick with us for these six weeks, there are gonna be some tremendous nuggets of gold in the last 14 chapters. And, and we'll learn more, I believe, as we look at the life of Joseph as a servant of God. And so as I said already, we're gonna start in Genesis 37. If you've turned there, turn to chapter 37. If you're using a Bible that's provided, it's on page 29. If looking at a Bible is new to you, don't be, don't be feeling daunted by that. The, the large number is the chapter number. We're looking at Genesis 37, and the small numbers are the verses. And, and I'm gonna read the entire chapter this morning. And so follow with me as I read. Starting in verse one. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any, others, any other of his sons because he was a son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we're binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf rose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to us, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream, and it told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their flock, father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. 
So he said to them, go now, see if it is well with your brothers, with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering the fields, and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe and the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into the pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then he sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it we kill if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And, our, and his brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, this is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn, in, torn to pieces. Then Jacob torn his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son in the morning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, and a fair, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This morning, if you came in, you should have received a bulletin, and that is an outline. And my outline will float around the text this morning, but here's the three main points. The complexity of family, the purpose of God, and the relief of grace. This is a tremendous chapter to consider, and I pray they'll be helpful to you. And let me pray now and ask God to help us, and then we'll get started. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for the opportunity to worship you right now. And it's my prayer that during this time we'd have together, we'd be able to set aside the concerns of daily life, that we'd be able to be fully present here in our minds and our hearts. I pray that we'd be able to be still in our striving and know that you're God. And preaching is only effective because your word is effective. So let my words be consistent with your word. Let my mouth speak what has come from your mouth. Let us be attentive and eager to hear and trusting that in preaching, we're not just hearing the words of a man, but the truth of God. So I pray that we would set aside whatever distractions or concerns we've carried in here this morning and let us listen and be changed. Let us ever be more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And we pray this all in his name, amen. First is the complexity of family. Every family is weird, right? 
Have you ever met a normal family? You might think your family's normal, but they're not. Every family is dysfunctional in some way because every family is comprised with sinners and so every family has, has been spoiled in some way because of sin. But Genesis shows us uh, that, that God can use the complexity and dysfunction of any family for his own glory. And what is shown on the outside doesn't always line up with what's going on on the inside. A family may look normal on the outside, all put together, all, all getting along. They might dress nice and act cordial, but underneath there might be something brewing. If you were to look at a, a photo of Mount St. Helens in January of 1980, you would see this beautiful snow-capped mountain. It looked prestigious, monumental, tall, and sturdy. It would look gorgeous. I mean, there's nothing more stable than looking at a mountain, right? But then May of 1980 happened. And as strong and as great as Mount St. Helens looked on the outside, inside something was brewing and it blew. This is the family of Joseph in Genesis 37. Joseph was born into a complex family situation. There was one father, Jacob, or Israel, four mothers, two wives, two concubines, 11 sons and one daughter, a blended family with, with serious issues brewing underneath. First, we have Jacob. The story is, is primarily about the brothers. It's about Joseph and his brothers, but part of the issues in this family was the favoritism that Jacob showed to Joseph. Jacob grew up desperately lacking the love and affirmation of his father because his father, Isaac, overtly and clearly preferred his brother Esau to him. This neediness, this lack of affirmation caused Jacob to find in other things, other things to find that, and, and he adored one, Rachel, right? Rachel was beautiful, and when Jacob looked at her, he knew that his life would finally be complete, Right? When the world wants this, you complete me. Nonsense. And he says in his heart, if I have her, then finally, finally my life will be complete. She was the dream. Of course, it didn't work out the way he thought. After seven years of labor and service to Laban, her father, it was time for the wedding. That, not, that night, it's time for Jacob to realize the wife that he's been dreaming of. And he's waiting for, for Rachel to come into the tent to become his wife. And here's the catch. Laban deceives him and sends in his oldest daughter, Leah, instead. And by the time Jacob realizes it, it's too late. He's married to Leah. Jacob, the deceiver, gets deceived by Laban and marries Leah instead. And then he marries, or he, and then he works another seven more years before he gets his, his bride, Rachel. But then Rachel, ha, Rachel has fertility problems, while her sister Leah produces babies with ease. And by the time Rachel is pregnant, both women have vied for their husband's favor, and rivalries have ensued, and tensions were high. And this is a powder keg of a family at this point. Jacob and Rachel have two sons. They were the youngest of all the children. She had Joseph and then Benjamin, and she died giving birth to Benjamin. And what we see here in verse three, now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was a son of his old age. It's, it's Joseph, after Rachel died, Joseph had become the new emotional center for Jacob's life. It wasn't God, it went to Rachel. And then when she's gone, it was Joseph. He was the prize. He was the one that Jacob believed would carry on his name. He was the one that was gonna... The, lead the legacy, and to show his love for Joseph, it says he made him a robe of many colors. 
The Hebrew is hard to translate here, but it means either a robe of many colors or a, a robe richly ornamented. But the key is that it was richly made and expensive. This is truly a messed up family. And in verse 2, we get the introduction to Joseph, who had 17 at the time and has just come back and gives his dad a, a bad report. Commentators tell you that the Hebrew word for bad report is a word that always means a false report or a lie or at least a misrepresentation of some kind. Like when the spies go out and come back with a bad report of Canaan and how they should go and what they should do. It could mean slander, but we're not sure. One thing we do know for sure is that his brothers weren't really good guys. And we'll see more of that. So whether it was a bad or slanderous report, it doesn't matter. There, there was probably plenty to choose from in their life. But what's the, what's the first thing Jacob does after receiving the bad report? He gives him the expensive robe. See, Joseph had become the idol of Jacob's life, the God. And, and Joseph's life was now central joy to Jacob. And this poisons the family. And then the robe wasn't the first indication of the family dysfunction, though. When Jacob returned to the promised land after the sojourn, he had to face Esau, and in Genesis 33, with 400 men, and Jer Jacob is terrified and thought there would be danger. Do you know what he does? And in that moment, he takes Rachel and young Joseph and tucks them away in the back, a back in the, in the very far back of the caravan, while he puts his older brothers and their mothers left exposed in the front. How do you think that would make those brothers feel? See, Jacob saw this type of dysfunction firsthand with his father. And you might think that he would choose not to do it, but he turns around and does the same thing. Jacob is a deeply flawed man. There's some serious things as you study his life and see. He's, he's showing, though, he needs a rescue. What about Joseph? Joseph? Joseph is seen as the hero in the story. But we, we need to realize that he's simply a man. As we saw in verse 2, he wasn't perfect. He was immature and did foolish things. He, he brings back supposedly a drummed-up story of his brothers, but that is also really the way he handles these dreams. It says in verse 6, he said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to them, Are, we indeed to reign, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you to, indeed to rule over us? It would seem, on the outside, we weren't there, but it would seem that at the very least, um, he's socially tone deaf. I mean, he's 17, he's, he's young, inexperienced, he's, he's probably exuberant, but he's socially unaware. Because he must have known, in some way, the disdain that his brothers had for him. And yet he comes back, again, with the second dream. Verse 9. It's, it's one thing... For, for Joseph to tell the first dream, knowing their hate towards them, it's another thing then to do it again. And his immaturity is showing, his, his success at this young age is possibly uh, going to ruin him. We've seen this before, I'm sure, in, in this world, how before he gets older, unless something profound happens to him to turn his heart, whether you know it or not, though, I believe Joseph is in need of a rescue here. But then you have the brothers. They're no saints at all. It would have not have taken much imagination for Joseph to come up with a story about what was happening. Reuben had already slept with his father's concubine while, while uh, 
Simon and, and Levi had slaughtered virtually a whole tribe at Shechem because of what happened to their sister. These men were known to be rough, reckless, and dangerous. And these guys probably had it in for Joseph even before he could walk. They were viewed most clearly as the lesser brothers, and they hated that Joseph would be loved by their father more than them. But then Joseph had to share the dreams, and their hate grew rapidly, as we see. It's like the lava is forming below the surface, and soon it's going to blow. They desperately needed a rescue. You see, underneath this family, this large, prosperous family, was hidden the, the depth of brokenness and sin that will destroy them. It will crush them all if something doesn't step in and stop it. They all need a rescue or they'll implode. And when we stop and consider the dysfunction of this family, maybe it will help you understand the dysfunction in your own family. Every family has dysfunction. God meant to put you in the family that he did. You realize that? God didn't make any mistakes. It was no accident. There's a reason for the family that God chose for you. Whether you're born into that family, adopted into that family, or came later in life through marriage into that family, God has a purpose behind it all. You're in your family for a reason, and you can't forget that. God has a purpose for it. And remember, in case you've forgotten, the Bible isn't there to show you how to have a good and easy life. To put it bluntly, if it were, then why in the world would we read this chapter? I mean, we find some truth here to learn how not to live. You can find some ways how you shouldn't parent. That's not the primary purpose of the story or the storyline of the Bible. It's so much more. It's here to show us we need a rescue. Like, like Jacob and Joseph and his brothers. It's, it's here to show us how much we need grace. So we've looked at the complexity of the family. Second, the purpose of God. You know, even though God isn't mentioned in this chapter, he's at work. And we'll see that more clearly. And as I was preparing this week, I thought, oh great, I get to talk about dreams. So, because I'm sure you're interested, I'm going to talk about dreams. I'm going to share everything I know about dreams, and it'll be one paragraph. Are you ready? So you can come up to me and ask me afterwards at the door about more questions, but this is it, okay? So it's clear that the Bible, in the Bible, that God uses dreams for his people. The story along with Daniel and Cornelius and Acts 10 are further proof that God uses dreams. But God's primary way of communicating truth today is through his word. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Do you want to be prepared for the work God has for you to do? You need to read and study his word. It doesn't say that Joseph was waiting for a dream to go and do something. He was there ready to serve. So that's all I have to say about dreams. I told you to be short. What were the dreams that Joseph had? Well, in verse 7, behold, we were, he says, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, the sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. The, the first dream about corn hints at the future famine and the work that Joseph would do in Egypt to save his family. He was to be responsible for not only saving them, but all of Egypt. 
And obviously his brothers recognized that there was some status change that was gonna happen for Joseph, that they would bow to him. And they didn't like it. But then the second dream goes even farther than the first. It says, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told to his father, his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come bow ourselves to the ground before you? It's clear that Joseph would rule over them and that's why his brothers grow more and more agitated with him. His father even rebuked him for this. These, these dreams in this chapter contain no revelation of God. The only way that we know they're of God is because we have opportunity to look backwards and see them fulfilled. And in verse 11, as his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So even though Jacob rebukes him, it says that he kept what he said in mind. And Jacob seemed to have that seeing the truth in it. He, he recognizes that God has spoken in some way. He doesn't understand how it will work out, but he at least takes it seriously enough to think through it, to dwell in it. But why did Joseph then tell the dreams to his brothers? Well, I believe God wanted them to know, to, to log it away somehow, of how he was gonna work in their lives. He, he, he dropped a rock in their shoe. Have you ever gotten a rock in your shoe and you can't get it out and it just bugs you? I think that's kind of what was happening. That's my opinion. But it's this way of to say, this is, you have to look for this. And it just trailed with them. A, drawing, a way of drawing lines back so they can understand later. But I think you can understand why the older brothers were angry at the dreams. See, in ancient societies, the younger would always bow down to the older. The, the oldest would get the lion's share of the estate and wealth. This is how it was supposed to be. And so these dreams were, at, were radically subversive. They were statements that this family wouldn't function like every other family, that God would rescue them through the younger brother. And for them, it was impossible to see this. It was impossible for this to happen, which makes it beautiful, I believe, to consider how God would work in the impossible to fulfill his plans for his people. But the purpose of God in this story, though, has so many coincidences. I like that word, coincidences, these, these accidents, quotation marks there. God's sovereign providence is littered all throughout the story, just as it is in your life. And God is doing so many things right now in our lives. So many things, and you might be aware of one, two, or three at most. But let's look at a few of the coincidences in this story. Some of the accidents that needed to happen for Joseph to get to Egypt if he's going to rescue his people. Well, first, Jacob needed to send Joseph to check on his brothers. But the brothers just happened to move to Shechem where Joseph was sent. They moved from Shechem, excuse me, and they went to, to Dothan. And so as he's searching for them in Shechem, Joseph accidentally bumps into a man who would have seen them and then tells them where they went. See, if the brothers had stayed in Shechem, Joseph could have easily found them. But then they wouldn't have been on the main camel route down to Egypt. And when Joseph comes into view, what do the brothers want to do? What do they say? They see him from afar, and before he comes near, they conspire to kill him. But Reuben happens to be there to save him from being killed, to divert their plan. But, but Reuben then wasn't there when the caravan came and took Joseph away to Egypt. See, there's more in there. And as you read it with that, with that understanding, the lens of seeing how God has providentially worked and is sovereigning this, you see that there's more into the story that, that meets the eye. And all these coincidences needed to happen 
exactly in the right order at just the right time to get Joseph down to where he needed to be so that he could rescue his family, so that he could rescue his people. But maybe what you noticed and what I did is how painful and how confusing these coincidences must have been for the people that were going through them. And God is sovereign control over everything. And yet in that sovereign control, there were difficult things. There was a destruction of peace and happiness for both Joseph and for Jacob. Both of their dreams seemed to be destroyed in a matter of hours. God's plan left Joseph in a pit, stripped naked and discarded. His plan left Jacob mourning and wailing over the loss of his son. Darkness, emptiness would fill the life of Jacob for the next 20 years, believing that his son was dead. And sometimes God's sovereignty is hard. Both Jacob and Joseph's dreams were shattered and broken and there was no voice from heaven telling them that it was gonna work out all right. There was nothing for them to fall back on. They were seemingly alone in the misery. You notice too that, that even the most skilled biblical counselor on the planet could not have helped them in every step of this tragedy. Time would have to answer their questions. Many more twists and turns down the path before they would have any answers to what have happened that day. And at the end of the story, and we'll get to this, Lord willing, in a few weeks, faith and hope are vindicated while doubt and despair are vanquished. This may be encouraging this morning because you're wrestling right now with the bitter providence of God in your life. Perhaps you came in here this morning wondering if God had abandoned you. Can, can he really be sovereign over your life right now? Could it really be God who has diverted or destroyed your dreams? Or maybe you're aware of God's control of your life and you're just angry. You've allowed bitterness to be your main dish every meal. You know God has ended your dreams and you're having a hard time dealing with that reality. Friends, you need to listen to this story even more carefully. God does allow us and direct us to a path that is dark and slippery and dangerous. He, he does divert our dreams, sometimes crushing them. He does allow us to take switchback after switchback on the trail of our lives, taking us to the very edge. And he's not being mean. He's not being cruel. There is a purpose behind it all. Nowhere do we read in the Bible that our lives are meant to be easy and pain-free. And if you came this morning believing that it isn't from the Bible and it's not from God, he has profound lessons that he wants to teach us in our lives that will grow us and glorify him. Very simply, for Joseph, he will not be able to save his people by staying comfortable in his rich, colorful robe sitting on the couch. And God doesn't tell Jacob all the details of what happened. Because if he did, he wouldn't want that to happen. See, Jacob's idolatrous love for Joseph needs to be challenged. And for that to come to fruition, Joseph must be taken away. It's unloving of God to allow us to stay in the same pattern of sin. 
God loves Jacob way too much to let him worship Joseph instead of himself. And your pain, friends, is never meaningless. God has purpose in your pain. There's a purpose in the pain that you experience. But I want to be clear this morning. God is not the author of sin. The Lord may remove restraints and put us in situations where we both have the motive and the opportunity to go ahead and sin, and then our hearts go after that desire. And those ordaining of circumstances, God is not the agent of sin, nor does he condone it. He is never the author of our sinful deeds or the sinful deeds that are done to us. Our sinful deeds flow out from our own hearts who truly want to sin our own. Yet God is still sovereign over our sin by controlling all those circumstances and shaping the influences that bring us to the point of sin. I believe that no one who reads this story can really buy into the view of open theism, which talks about the openness of God. Have you heard of this before? Those that teach open theism believe that God doesn't truly know the future, but he reacts to history as it happens, that God acts without a plan, that he's surprised as much as we are, and they believe this is the only way God can have integrity in dealing with the humans. Instead, we teach, we believe that God is guiding history according to his plans. Yet at the same time, people make their own free choice to sin. God didn't manipulate Joseph's brothers to hating him. They did so freely. And yet it serves God's purposes. This is not to say that God approves of the crimes or enjoys watching disaster. It's simply a testimony to the fact that God brings good out of evil while still holding us accountable for our decisions and our actions. No one made the Jews hate Jesus. When Judas betrayed Jesus, it was his willful decision. But it didn't thwart God's plan. Instead, it served his plan. Though wicked men killed Jesus, it was what his counsel and will determined beforehand should happen. Friends, God is really God. His sovereignty can be found in the midst of the most heinous and crimes and most disastrous circumstances. And even though God is God and his plan will happen, we should never condone sin or make light of sin. God never makes light of sin and the consequences of sin, and neither should we. When sin takes grip on our hearts that wants more and more control. And we see this clearly in this story of the brothers and the horrific treatment of Joseph. Sin that's unchallenged and unconfessed makes us harder and less responsive. Sin hardens the heart. And we see this with the brothers. They strip him of his robe. The robe of many colors, right? And they take him and they throw him in the pit. And then they sit down to eat. They're so callous to Joseph. Do you see the hardness in their hearts? They sit down to eat. It says later in chapter 42, they heard him while they were eating, crying out. Friends, this is what sin does. It hardens us. The word stripped is a word that means to skin an animal. It was violently ripped off of him. He was probably thrown naked into this pit. 
Even the word through is not a generic word. It's, it's a word that means to dump a dead body into a grave. Even if the Hebrew word is used, it's of a live person. It means to abandon them to death. And their sin was horrific towards their brother. And they sit down to eat. They believe that they're frustrating the word that Joseph had spoken to them concerning the dreams when all they're doing was showing how desperately they needed to rescue themselves. Like Jesus, who's on the cross and cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The brothers don't understand their actions. And yet God is still sovereign over this. What is he teaching you this morning? Do you believe God has a purpose for the plans of your life? What are the issues that you're facing right now? Perhaps it's a family that's just crumbling or a, a spouse who has strayed, who's rejected God and, and your word. Maybe it's ailing parents who are zapping your time and energy and joy. Maybe it's kids who've walked away from God. Perhaps you're here today and you're experiencing uncontrollable physical pain that doesn't allow you to, to live the way you desire. Or you're here and you've lost a job. Or you're still in that job and it's not like what you thought. Maybe you're here and all of your friends have abandoned you. In all these areas, possibly our dreams that we think should satisfy our life. And we've hung our hats on them, thinking they will help us get through to the next day. And now you realize that God is removing that dream. He's diverting it. or Because ultimately, your dream won't end up with you worshiping him. See, God has a dream for his people, and it's all about his glory and his purpose. And we have a God who doesn't create pride and evil and cruelty, but instead he arranges it, he overwhelms it, and he overrules it. And so all the evil that you experience in this life will eventually destroy itself. And I have good news for you, Christian, this morning. God will not allow you to mess up your life. Paul says, Pastor Ryan read it this morning, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Do you believe that to be true? He won't allow you to continually mess up your life because he's sovereign. And I believe God often works the most when it seems he's most hidden. I believe the truth we need to remind ourselves most of is that of Romans 8, 28 and 29. Because if we believe this to be true, we would be more patient, more enduring, more consistent in our walk with him. Well, we've seen the complexity of family and the purpose of God last, the relief of grace. When we're suffering, the thing that we long for most is relief. To be reassured, to be relaxed from the trouble that we're facing, we long for grace, that free, unmerited favor. But as humans, we believe, we're, we're convinced that grace should come in the form of answers to our questions. We want to know why we're suffering. 
The why is what we focus on, but, but knowing the why won't bring the comfort that we long for. The relief we need isn't, isn't answers only. The relief comes through grace, through sovereign grace, through the sovereign grace giver. The relief we need is God himself. Spurgeon said, there is no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. On the other hand, there is no doctrine more hated by worldlings. Why? Because the proud human heart doesn't want to submit to an almighty God. We want to make our own plans. We want to have our own dreams. We don't want anyone to step in and change things. So we can so easily delude ourselves into thinking that we have complete control of our lives. Benjamin Warfield, world-renowned theologian who taught at Princeton Seminary for 34 years. You know Princeton was a seminary, right? Not anymore. Not many of you know the story that in 1876, at age 25, he married his sweetheart, Annie, and they traveled to Germany for their honeymoon. And on their honeymoon, an intense storm, lightning struck Annie and permanently paralyzed her. After Warfield cared for, cared for her for 39 years, she died in 1915. Because of her extreme needs, Warfield seldom left his home for more than two hours at a time during all those years of marriage. Imagine you're on your honeymoon. Imagine that happening on your honeymoon and, and the effect that would have on your worldview. So what did this theologian with shattered dreams do? What did he say about Romans 8.28? He says, the fundamental thought is the universal government of God. All that comes to you is under his controlling hand. The secondary thought is the favor of God to those that love him. If he governs all, then nothing but good can befall those to whom he would do good. Though we are too weak to help ourselves and too blind to ask for what we need, we can only groan in unformed longings. He is the author on us of these very longings, and he will so govern all things that we shall reap only good from all that befalls us. Really, Warfield? Only good from all that befalls us. So even from a personal tragedy that deeply hurts your beloved wife and dramatically restricts her personal abilities and your daily schedule for the rest of your life and most of yours, this is his response. See, Warfield spoke not from the sidelines, but from the playing field of suffering. Answering with an emphatic yes to the loving sovereignty of God. See, God's sovereignty was a relief of grace to him in his life for service to God. And because when, when you understand the sovereignty of God, you truly understand who God is. Do you know God? Do you know that he's always there? If you know that and, the, and you're in a pit like Joseph, crying out because you feel alone, Remind yourself that you're not alone. Because Christianity is, is the only religion that even claims that God has suffered. And that God went into a pit, that God is there in the dark beside you. God knows what it's like to suffer. God suffered with you. God suffered for you. He did, so you're not alone. And you, in the midst of suffering, can know that he loves you. That's what you actually need. I mean, to be blunt with you this morning, if you're in the midst of suffering, you don't need answers. That's not what you need. You may want answers, but that won't bring grace. 
It, it might be even harder to know the details and why things were happening in your life. But you may say, I want to know why. Why won't God tell me why? But you will understand. And try telling my three-year-old how to get to college. That's what it's like. She won't understand. She won't grasp all that she needs to know or even why. Or even this, I thought of this. You know, when my, my three-year-old falls, when she's running through the, the living room and she trips on the rug, running, and she begins to cry, what does she need? You know what I think she needs in those moments? Well, Lucy, you were running and you weren't paying attention. That rug's there and you tripped. And she's crying. Does she need an explanation? Does she want an explanation? She doesn't give a lick why she tripped. She's suffering. She wants to be held. She wants to be loved by her dad. When you're in suffering, you may think you want those intellectual answers. But that won't help you. You need God. You need him. You need to know that God is with you, that he's present. See, suffering either draws you closer to God or pushes you farther away from him. And when we suffer and we draw near to him, we find strength and courage because through that you are assured of God's love for you. Because you're with him. And the cross proves it to you, that he's there, that he loves you. The way of salvation for Joseph's life was so abnormal to the way the world thinks salvation should happen. But what we learn through the last section of Genesis is that it points our minds to another one who came to his people, to his own. And they didn't receive him either. There was another one who was plotted against. There was another one who was sold for pieces of silver. There was another one who was betrayed by those closest to him. And he was stripped of his dignity abandoned to die, and cries out in the dark. And this one, this one is Jesus. Joseph was turned into a savior for his people, and the only way salvation works is through weakness and suffering and rejection. And Joseph could only save his people through being rejected by his people, by his brothers. He could never be their savior, though eventually he would be, unless he was first lost, unless he was humbled, unless he was rejected and sold. Joseph was, was being turned involuntarily into a savior for his family, for his people. And Jesus Christ came and he was rejected by his people. He was thrown into a pit and he was left for dead. He was abandoned infinitely beyond anything Joseph went through. But he did it voluntarily to be the savior for us. And friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you need to understand this morning that Jesus came to die to suffer on the cross for your sins, to bear the wrath of God towards your sin. Jesus Christ came as your substitute to take your place so you wouldn't have to because you couldn't. This is the reason why Jesus was born as a human. He was born to die. And the power of the cross is the fact that the one being killed on it was sinless. He was not suffering for his sin. He was suffering and dying for ours. And in his death, we too died. And in his resurrection, we're too raised to new life. 
And this gift of forgiveness comes to us freely as we simply trust in what Jesus has done for us on the cross. This morning, we have the privilege to remember this. We have the privilege to observe the Lord's Supper together as Christians. And this table is for Christians. It's for those only who have turned from their way of life, from their sins, and trusted in Christ alone. And we come to this communion service, and we come to remember what Christ has done for us on the cross. We come and we remember that we couldn't do it ourselves. And instead of trying to stand before God, dressed in our own righteousness, justified by our own best effort, Instead, we put on a blood-stained robe of Jesus and ask God to recognize his son's robe as our only claim to righteousness. It's only through what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. Friends, do you know why you were born? As the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why. That is your greatest achievement on this planet. When we know this and we live this way, it reshapes how we respond to suffering. Don't believe the lie that there's no point in our suffering. There is. How could a God who acts sovereignly in all circumstances and is even sovereign over the worst sinful acts of humans not be at work for our good and for the glory of God? Friends, we need to continue to trust in God. He is at work in your life. Psalm 30, verse 5 says, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. God will use our painful sufferings, our sins, and the sins of others to show us more about our hearts and more about our need for him and more about our desperate need for the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. And now as we prepare to partake of this communion service, we remember again what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. We thank you for the opportunity that we have as a, as a, as a church family to gather together around this table, around this meal. And as we partake of this, this bread and this juice, they Show us, again, what Christ has done for us. And we see the seriousness of sin. Christ had to die for our sins. And then he rose again to show that you were satisfied with his payment for us. Father, we remember you. We remember you this morning. We remember Jesus and what he's done for us. And we thank you, Spirit, for filling us, for controlling us, for, for giving us understanding of your word and who you are, for sealing us. And now, God, may you be honored and glorified as we partake of this meal together. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.